Hey. hey. You're listening to Avid Research. Avid Research. Avid Research. An Australian STEM podcast. Where we answer the questions you never quite got around to asking. Welcome back to the show team. My name is Amelia and today we have yet another awesome guest on the show. We've got Dr. Kathy Northcote, who is the Research and Development Manager for Veolia Australia and New Zealand. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kathy. Thank you very much, Amelia. I'm glad to be here. Awesome. That's a very positive start. Hopefully starting with an easy question. What is your job? Well, as you described, Amelia, uh, I am the Research and Development Manager for Veolia Australia New Zealand, affectionately known as Veolia ANZ. And if you're wondering who Veolia is, we're actually a global water waste and energy service provider. We're very big with 179,000 employees worldwide. And our job is to make civilization comfortable for you. We supply roughly 98 million people with safe drinking water, about 67 million people around the world with wastewater services. We produce about 45 million megawatt hours of energy. And we treat about 50 million metric tonnes of waste. Wow, that's, they're big. They're, every single one of those was a really big number. Yeah, it's a, it's a big company um, and we operate in a lot of different countries around the world. That's awesome. And I would just like on behalf of everyone who's listening to say thank you very much for doing this work because, you know, it's, it's fairly important for the functioning of a happy society. No worries. <laughs> I'll take the compliment. <laughs> Oh, we were actually discussing this the other day. Without these these kind of services, like society would grind to a pretty um, uh, squishy halt. Oh yeah, quite quickly. Yeah, uh, I mean, all you need is uh, you know a, a rubbish collection strike or something, and you realise how unpleasant things get very quickly. How lucky are we to have organised rubbish collection in Australia? Like, oh, <laughs> it makes the problem go away. <laughs> In, in fairness, it goes somewhere else, but hey, it's not in front of my house, so. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Already given you the giggles, I'm sorry. <laughs> so within all that, like obviously I guess any company could be like, look, we're, we're treating all this waste, um, we're generating all this energy, we can just like sit back and relax and keep doing it. But I'm guessing from your title that means that there's a bit of research and development going on. There's actually a bit of thinking about how you could do that better, I'm guessing? Oh, absolutely. So whilst on the surface, what you see is a really, you know, uh, smooth, well-oiled machine, there's a lot of challenges. And probably with climate change and population growth, all of those sort of challenges, there's always a need to develop and grow and improve on our knowledge. And for that reason, there's a need to do research and development. What, if you're okay with answering this, what would you see as probably the biggest challenge for Veolia in the next couple of years? I think a lot of it is responding to the challenges of global population growth, of the the rise of, of contamination and pollution, uh, particularly around things like uh, microplastics, whether it be in our environment, in the ocean, potentially contaminating water and wastewater supplies, all sorts of chemical contaminants that uh, are at very low levels, but potentially can be toxic both to humans and to the environment. And so that requires us to be constantly 
adapting and evolving and doing more research and, and finding out ways to, you know, treat water so that it's always safe to drink, to uh, treat and recycle waste and prevent it from going into the environment and into our waterways. Uh, they're, they're some of the really critical challenges that Veolia faces. Yeah, because you, I don't know, I just hadn't thought about the, particularly like the issue of microplastics kind of coming full circle into our water system as well. That's a terrifying thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is a terrifying thought. And and I mean, uh, uh, microplastics is probably a really good example because you might be surprised to, to know that something as simple as washing your clothes most of our clothes now contain some amount of, of plastic, whether it be, you know, polyester, um, you know, nylon. We all of, you know, our clothes are made from these sort of um, plastic-based materials and, and very tiny, tiny fibres come off in the wash and they end up in the wastewater in our sewage systems, which goes to a wastewater treatment plant. And depending on where you know after that water is 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 treated in a wastewater treatment plant it may be uh, treated to a point where it's safe for environmental discharge whether it goes you know to to a surface water or a river once it's been treated to a, a safe environmental level or it might be used for recycled water whether it's for irrigating parks and gardens those sort of things and so what we don't want to happen is you know all of those billions and billions of tiny little pieces of, of fibres off people's clothing to end up being discharged from the wastewater treatment plant. So that poses a big challenge for us uh, in terms of how do we make sure that our wastewater treatment process uh, prevents uh, that sort of contamination from, from being released, you know, from our wastewater system. Yeah. How do you filter it out? And then I guess as well, what do you do with it once you've filtered it out? Yeah, absolutely. And and the problem is, is the jury is still out in terms of how big a problem it is uh, to both society and the environment. And so there's a huge amount of research going on around the world currently to really fully understand the nature of microplastic contamination. What are our biggest risks, you know, in terms of where microplastics are coming from? And what are the actual both human and environmental impacts in the long run? It's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, yes, terrifying. <laughs> what are some of the projects that you're working on? If you're able to share with us any kind of the the challenges that you're currently working on solving? As I mentioned initially, our areas of operation are in uh, water and wastewater services, in waste management uh, and waste treatment and in, in energy. Uh, and so the kind of research that uh, we do here in, in Australia, Veolia does here in Australia, is uh, mostly around improvements and optimization of our operations. So it might be something along the lines of uh, looking at our wastewater treatment plants around Australia and optimizing them. So for example, something like blue-green algae. So, you know, blue-green algae is a big problem or cyanobacteria is a big problem in Australia. Um, recently, the Murray-Darling Basin had a big blue-green algae bloom, which caused fish deaths and things like that. Much of the Murray-Darling Basin provides the source water for drinking water treatment plants. 
Um, and so a lot of research goes into how do we address the risks of blue-green algae? Um, how do we optimise our treatment processes so that uh, people are not exposed to algal toxins from, from these algal blooms and those sort of things? So there's that sort of research. Uh, we're doing research into new processes uh, for waste treatment and waste management, whether it be uh, looking at waste to energy facilities and how do we produce clean energy from essentially waste uh, in terms of making sure that we don't have any toxic emissions from waste to energy processes. How do we get the best performance out of waste to energy processes? There's That's some of the research we do. And then there's also uh, renewable energy. So we're doing work in the renewable energy space. There's a, a multi-award winning project that Veolia did in collaboration with uh, the University of the Sunshine Coast, where we've actually built a, a solar thermal battery, which uh, provides much of the energy requirements for the University of Sunshine Coast campus and also provides all of the air conditioning for the site. Uh, so it doesn't require them to draw energy off the grid to actually cool the campus. Wow. They are very different kinds of projects. Like they're all definitely sort of problem solving and improvement, but they're also in very different kind of fields. Yeah, it's 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 really broad. Mm. Um, and so there's every day is a new exciting challenge. <laughs> and And it's all about learning something completely new. I was about to ask you, what does an average day look like for you? Is that sounding like it might be a bit of a silly question? <laughs> so really, my job in a nutshell is about supporting and collaborating on R&D. And it's also about collecting information on those R&D projects and sharing the knowledge and the stories about those R&D projects. So any typical workday might consist of working with R&D project managers. So I don't personally do all of the R&D myself. I'm more of the, you know, bringing people together to work on challenges and, and problems. More of the advisory and supporting role is, is what I do. So I might work with the R&D project managers to help them develop and design on their project concepts uh, provide some advice on how to deliver on, on certain research projects that they're working on. I collect the project information from those R&D projects to provide reports to senior management and to the wider organisation. And I would also organise webinars, seminars, workshops, help people put together conference papers to promote the knowledge sharing and the knowledge adoption around R&D projects. That is one of the things I was wondering because, like, it's a private enterprise and how does that go with, I guess, balancing the need to be competitive in a economic environment and also, like, help other people improve their processes as well? Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, it's sort of a two-part. There's, there's, the, there's our own internal technical and knowledge sharing um, you know, making our people bigger, better, faster, stronger so that they can, you know, continue to grow and develop and and share, you know, the, the valuable knowledge and information that's generated from research. And then there's also going out into industry 
and telling those stories, whether it be through conference presentations or presenting at seminars and those sort of things, to talk about our research successes um, and and the, the wins that we've managed to have in terms of improving, you know, our operational performance or our environmental um, or, or public health performance as a, as an organisation. Yeah, so it's it's finding the right balance, I guess. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and look, we're not afraid to share our stories, and and you know, quite often you'll see Veolia people get up and and talk about some of the projects they've been working on at, at big conferences and that sort of thing. It's always good to hear that there's people in industry who are open and sharing things. It's very heartening. <laughs> Is there any particular project that you've worked on that you're particularly proud of? Oh, in terms of being uh, particularly proud of, I think one that I really liked, and, and this was more of a, I guess, a little bit of the feel-good factor and it also was a bit of a sentimental uh, thing for me was Veolia had the opportunity to collaborate with the Australian Antarctic Division Ooh. on some uh, research and it sort of came about because of my background. Uh, I did my PhD um, on an Antarctic water treatment project and so I got to know people at the Australian Antarctic Division and so several years later they contacted me and said, oh, we'd really love to do some collaborative work with you. And a lot of it was around water treatment for uh, cleaning up diesel spills. So in the Antarctic, they use diesel as their main fuel source. Um, they do have some renewable sources like um, wind generation, but most of their energy comes from diesel. And the risk in such an extreme environment is, is diesel spills. So we were able to work with them on some co collaborative research looking into cleanup of diesel spills in Antarctica. Was that as complicated as I imagine it would be? Because it's cold, it's hypersensitive environment. Yeah. Like nothing is in your favour. No. <laughs> no, it isn't. It's pretty much everything against you. And so the, the the thing is, is most of the the year down in Antarctica, everything is just completely frozen. And so you would imagine that if you've had a diesel spill, it's not going to do very much. But then there's a very, very short, sharp summer season where uh, snow and ice uh, melts out. You know, the temperatures get high enough and the, the sun intensity gets high enough that snow and ice starts to melt out. And that's when you have this problem with diesel starting to appear from from old spills and because some of the sites that the Australian Antarctic Division are working on are, are located very close to the coastline um, there's a real risk that it might get into the marine environment and and so with our background in water treatment and waste uh, treatment and waste management that's when they sort of um, asked if we would be interested in you know working with them on some of their research challenges and, and we've actually sent Veolia staff to Antarctica to work on a water treatment process down there. You know, qualified water treatment operators have gone down to, to work with the Australian Antarctic Division staff on this, um, you know, the cleanup project. That's a perk to the job that you don't necessarily see coming. I know, I know. Yeah, there's a, I've had quite a few people sort of say, how do I get that gig? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Can I also... It a slight tangent of a story, but I was in the Arctic in a, at a research station and the um, the water, something happened to the water purification-y stuff in, in winter, a pipe burst or something. And basically we didn't have access to 
we had very, very minimal water. And it was ironic being surrounded by so much technically water that was completely useless. Yeah, yeah, because it's frozen or it's untreated or, yeah, it's, it's, um, and it's very much the same case in Antarctica is you're surrounded by endless fields of frozen water, which, but the actual water allocation for the uh, stations where the Antarctic expeditioners live and work is very limited you know, in terms of the safe drinking water allocation. So, yeah, I I sympathise with you. (laughs) Well, you don't – I just didn't appreciate it. Like I've been on ships, you have your, like, limited showers on ships and things, and then we got – you know, you're still on land and it's like, no. And then you can't actually ever get cold water to fill your water bottle or whatever. It's always been slightly warm so it doesn't freeze in the pipes. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) All these things you never have to think about when you live in, like, Melbourne. (laughs) That's right. That's right. It's a completely different world when you're right on the fringes in terms of, you know, extreme remote sites. That's a that's such a cool project. I also didn't know that diesel froze. Yeah, well, it if you get down low enough, I guess it comes it becomes more like a almost like a gel, so it doesn't really flow. But then yeah, the minute the you, you get any sort of um heat onto it, Generally, you know, they get a, a sort of a summer season of one or two months, a couple of months, that sort of thing. It sort of gets to a temperature where it can start to flow. And, and the really big problem is when you get the ice melt uh, and then it just gets carried uh, with the ice melt. And it can it can travel for, you know, up to kilometres, really, if, you, if you've got, you know, a big enough ice melt happening. What happens to their wastewater? Like where does that get sort of like filtered and put in a shipping container and brought back here? Uh, So uh, with the Australian Antarctic Division, they are actually pretty much at the forefront of wastewater treatment, plant design and and implementation. So in recent years, they've they've started a program of putting in these state-of-the-art, they're called membrane bioreactor systems, which are pretty much the pinnacle of wastewater treatment technology that's available out there, which treats the water to a really high quality. And then then the treated effluent from the the wastewater treatment plant is uh, generally discharged to the ocean. But even more recently, what they've started looking at is the potential to treat the water to an even higher quality. And that's to address any potential toxicity from, you know, chemicals that are used on site, whether it be uh, something that's used in the workshop or something, you know, soaps and shampoos and stuff that expeditioners use in their bathrooms and things like that. So now they're looking at really, really advanced tertiary treatment prior to discharge on the wastewater treatment plants. So a lot of work going into that that sort of space. That's really cool. And it's also further evidence for the concept of necessity breeds invention. Oh, absolutely. Particularly in Antarctica where it is so remote, you can't afford to make any mistakes because the environment is so sensitive. Yeah, they're they're really putting a lot of time and effort into having the most robust wastewater treatment that they can. And hopefully eventually that bleeds back to here and helps our treatment as well. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, a big a big reason for, you know, Veolia collaborating with organisations like the Australian Antarctic Division is 
what we learn from these really extreme and remote projects, we can bring back. We can bring that experience back and build it into our own operational practices because, you know, we, we uh, run a lot of remote and regional sites ourselves. So what we learn in and, and, you know, use Antarctica as a bit of a test bed and then we bring that back and we can build it into our own operations. That's so cool. Just think about it, people. There's a chance that one day the where your waste goes, the technology that is used to treat it could have been influenced by work done in Antarctica. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, and s- certainly if Fioli is the service provider, there's a very good chance that that has happened. That's so cool. How have you ended up in this job? What what was your path, say, from high school to where you are now? I probably would say that I took the long way around <laughs> to end up as a research manager today. So I guess to, to paint a word picture, if my career was a board game, it probably look a little bit like Snakes and Ladders. So I graduated with a chemical engineering degree um, and then went into industry and I, was, I worked for a short space of time as a project manager in contaminated sites. Um, and the, my first project was working on an old gas works site, cleaning up the contamination. Then I kind of went sideways and got a job as a power station operator um, at a co-generation power station in South Australia. And at the time, I was the only female power station operator in South Australia, um, which was quite interesting. And then after a few years of that, I left industry and went back to university to do the PhD in water treatment with the focus on uh, Antarctic contaminated sites. And that was really fabulous, Um, really gave me a taste for both water and the water industry, water treatment, and and also research. And then after my PhD, I managed to land a fellowship and went over to Japan to work as a postdoctoral researcher. And it was also in water, but I was developing advanced filtration materials for water treatment. Then I came back to Australia and I did a little bit more postdoctoral research and then went back into industry to work as a process engineer in the water industry, uh, working on a whole bunch of different water and wastewater treatment sites around Australia. Um, I guess a big highlight of that was working in remote and regional parts of Australia. And then a really big one was actually working on an emergency water treatment plant in New Zealand after the Christchurch earthquake, which was a real eye-opener for me. And then more recently, I've landed roles as a research manager. I've worked for non-government research organisations, an organisation called Water Research Australia, and now, now with Veolia as the research manager. Was any of this your plan when you left high school? Uh, no. <laughs> I, I, I knew I wanted to be an engineer. So I'd, I kind of, I'd, you know, when you do, when you've, you're in your final year 11, year 12 of high school and you have to sort of decide, oh, do I want to apply to university? What, what areas do I want to apply? I knew I wanted to do engineering. I originally thought I was going to do civil engineering and I ended up in a chemical engineering introductory lecture during orientation week. And I don't know, he must have had amazing powers of persuasion because that lecturer basically decided that I would change my major. I went and I completely changed my course after I I went to that lecture. (laughs) And I, I just haven't really looked back. It's like, Every time an opportunity came along, I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. And I just jumped on it. But I'm actually really glad with everything that I did, I'm glad that I did it because it's all sort of added to 
what I do and how I do my job today. Yeah, like they're, they're different, but they would definitely build on each other. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it sort of allowed me to combine my interest in engineering, my interest in environmental issues and, and the water industry, and also my love of science and research all into one role basically. I'm very curious about how you made the leap from power station operator, which in itself is a fascinating thing that I want to ask all the questions about, how you made that leap into a PhD. Uh, So I guess a lot of it is it's who you know. I was very lucky that I'd kept in contact with a couple of my lecturers from my university days and they actually reached out to me and said, oh, by the way, we've, um, we've got a PhD opportunity coming up. Do you think you might be interested? And then when they sent me the information, I said, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And I applied and and was lucky enough to get it. That's awesome. Because I can't imagine many power station operators are sitting there being like, you know what? I'm going to go do a PhD in Antarctic water treatment. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Because I had a chemical engineering background, um, I kind of had a, I was involved in some way in water treatment at the power station. So although I was a power station operator, because I was also a chemical engineer, I was responsible for looking after the demineralization plant, which is an iron exchange process that uh, basically takes the, the salts out of water because they were using that water on the power station to produce steam to run the turbines. And so I kind of understood water treatment a little bit from my work as a power station operator. And so when they sort of said, oh, there's this water treatment project becoming available and it'll be based in Antarctica, I kind of understood enough about water treatment that I thought, yeah, I I can do that. I can do that. That's brilliant. It's all the transferable skills. Yeah, absolutely. And so... How have you ended up in this particular role? So I I guess it's, I was working as a process engineer with Veolia previously. Uh, As I said, I'd sort of bounced around all different parts of Australia working on various projects and things like that. There was a position that became available because the then research manager left the organisation, which opened up uh, an opportunity. And I was just lucky that there were some senior managers who were aware that I had a research background and that I'd done some postdoctoral research. And so they sort of contacted me and said, oh, would you, you know, would you like to be the next research manager? And I thought, yeah, I I can do that too. I'll give that a go. (laughs) It's always really good to hear of companies that will like bring people up within the ranks. Like that's a really good sign. Yeah. 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 It was, it was definitely a really good opportunity to be able to, you know, switch, switch tracks and, you know, rather than working in process and operations, switch it up and and go and work in the world of research. What's your favorite part of your current job? What helps you bounce out of bed in the morning and be like, we're going to R&D till the end of the day? I don't know if you're aware of those uh, t-shirts with the caption on them that says stand back I'm about to do science oh yes um that caption pretty much sums up how I feel about the world of research so and and a big part of it is I really love hearing about all of the amazing and innovative projects that people are working on and the role that I'm in now as as a research manager because it is so broad and I work for such a large organization I get to hear so many stories and I'm endlessly amazed by how many clever and creative 
science and engineering people are out there. I found I find the stories about their research journey absolutely fascinating. And I think that's what really motivates me about the role that I'm in. So it's not even necessarily doing the research yourself, but getting to, I guess, collate all these awesome people's ideas and thoughts. Yeah. I think I think it's that it's that thrill of being uh, being able to give people a voice to tell their science story. I just get a real kick out of it because they just I'm everybody just impresses me so much and it's it's really lovely to think that I'm one of the people who has allowed that person to get their story out there and to share it with the world. It's it's particularly heartening like in, I guess, a global environment, which can be a little bit negative towards science and there's misinformation, all that sort of stuff. And knowing that there's so many people doing such good stuff and that you can help them share that, that that's a pretty big warm fuzzy. Yeah, it does. It, it's, it's probably the biggest kick that I get out of my job is, is when, you know, somebody's done something amazing and then I've said, well, how about we create a webinar and we tell everybody about it or we write a conference paper and we tell everybody about it. And they're, they're just so, you know, thrilled to be able to do that. How many of them are also terrified? Oh, yeah, a lot. <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of people who, who do, yeah, who do get a bit frightened of the idea, particularly if they have to get up in front of a big audience. But I actually think that uh, certainly more and more people are actually more open-minded about getting up and, and talking. Uh, I find like a lot of the younger engineers and scientists that I work with are a lot less worried about getting up in front of an audience and they're more happy to give it a go. It's actually more of the older, you know, the the, the older generation of people who you just didn't talk about it back in the day kind of thing. They're more, they get more stressed than, than the young engineers and scientists do. Have you got a hypothesis obviously potentially completely uninformed but uh, a hypothesis at all as to why I think uh, some of it might be generational and I'm probably going to get kicked by a whole bunch of um, researchers who you know oh the whole thing of you know theory of generations is a load of rubbish and blah 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 and everything like that but I actually <laughs> do think that there may be a generational aspect to it is that a lot uh, a lot of say under 30s have grown up with things like social media and this this thing of of mm. being able to put yourself out there and talk about things and sharing your story they're not fearful of that because they've kind of grown up with it and all different ways whether it's you know whether you have a TikTok channel and you like to get up there and dance to an audience or whether you're just a really avid Facebook user and post about anything and everything. I think they're a lot less fearful about telling about storytelling and putting themselves out there in front of the public. Because that was definitely going to be my theory as well, based on like two seconds of thought. So yeah, that's- <laughs> that and like, you know, if there's a researcher out there who is researching this and actually knows, feel free to like send me a message because that'd be awesome. But if that's a positive side effect of social media, that would be freaking brilliant. Yeah, there, there has to be an upside, doesn't it? <laughs> well, I get to, like, you know, look at other people's cat fit photos. <laughs> cat videos, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not all bad. That's right. 
have you got any advice that you'd give a, give to a young person, say they're at high school and they hear this and they're like, oh, this like innovation in wastewater treatment and all that sort of stuff sounds awesome. Have you got any advice for someone like that? I'd say my, my advice is don't be afraid to do science and never think that you're not clever enough to be a scientist or an engineer. I think you just have to be interested and be willing to learn and be willing to work at it. Um, the opportunities, and I think my career to date is probably the perfect example, the opportunities are absolutely limitless in the science and engineering fields. So just don't be afraid, give it a go. Wonderful advice. Yep. And I, I am a bit alarmed that people think you need to be like super bright to be a scientist because a lot of it often is being curious and things, but also being able to sit down and work your way methodically through things it's not just like leaping to giant conclusions and then proving yourself correct yeah absolutely and I think a lot of it is as you said it's about sitting down and working through things methodically the whole basis of science and the scientific method is about basically coming up with a structured approach to addressing a problem uh, trying something if that doesn't work try the next thing. If that doesn't work, try the next thing and so on and so forth until you get a successful outcome. And that doesn't require you to be the next Einstein. It just requires you to have a certain level of interest and dedication to keep giving things a go. Yeah, it's dealing with a whole lot of negative results and still turning up at work. <laughs> Yep. To get that one positive. <laughs> yeah, we need to get rid of this. Like, it's a lone genius concept. It's just, it's, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> this might be a silly question, but is there any, like, water waste, anything like that, like citizen scientists, citizen science programs that, like, if there's, say, retired people who are listening to this and, like, yeah, I can't do it as a career, but I'd kind of like to help out. Um, yeah, there are various uh, citizen science programs uh, I've seen over the years, you know, various waterways monitoring, you know, with the community and things like that. One example that I could probably put my finger on immediately is the Victorian Environmental Protection Authority, EPA, uh, citizen science program. And it, it's it's basically you go onto the EPA website, which is epa.vic.gov.au go into the community drop-down list, click on Get Involved and Citizen Science Program. And it, they've actually got a really extensive program in many towns around Victoria. I would imagine that other EPAs in other states would have a similar thing. But um, all of the information that you need you know, to get involved if you're interested, particularly around environmental issues. You know, you can basically sign up and get involved with the local monitoring program in your region through the EPA. Awesome. And no one suggested that one before. So. Oh, there you go. New one. Yeah. I didn't even know it existed, which makes me a little bit embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So you've got your takeaway people. You can head over to the EPA website. And if you're not in Victoria, you can do some Googling. Yeah, I would just check your local EPA. I'm sure the other ones would, would have a similar program. There'll be something. Are there any myths? There actually, there has to be a lot of myths about like the areas that you're working in, but are there any particular myths that you would like to take this opportunity to bust? Mm, yeah, probably as considering I've got a background in water treatment and in um, drinking water more specifically, uh, the myth that um, 
we're being poisoned with fluoride. Oh, yeah, that's a spicy one. I'd like to bust, bust that myth. So a lot of people are concerned because, and where I am based in Victoria, the Victorian Department of Health and Human Services actually require most, not all, but most water treatment operators in Victoria to dose uh, a small amount of fluoride into the drinking water supply. And so particularly for people who come from countries where there are naturally high levels of fluoride that actually pose a a real health risk, they get very, very uh, concerned to hear that we actually actively put fluoride in our drinking water supply. And and so some countries are places like uh, India, uh, where in certain regional areas, uh, fluoride levels in the water supply are really high and, and, and quite dangerously high. Here in Victoria, fluoride level, natural background fluoride levels are quite low, almost undetectable in, in many water supplies. And The scientific evidence globally and over many decades shows that a low level, and by a low level I'm talking about between half and one milligrams per litre of fluoride, is actually very, very beneficial for your dental health. And many, many studies around the world have shown that particularly for children, you know, as their teeth are growing, Having a, a low level of fluoride in the drinking water supply helps protect their teeth from cavities uh, because it helps build the enamel on the surface of your teeth. And so all I can say is that Victoria's water supply is extremely safe. Yes, there is a very low level of fluoride that is dosed into the water, but it is for the benefit of your dental health and the health benefits far outweigh any potential risk of a, of a very low dose of fluoride in the water supply. Where does fluoride come from? Well, that is, that is the $6 million question. The problem is, is that the type of fluoride that is used actually comes from, it's, it's a byproduct from world um, sort of phosphorus production, you know, for fertilizer and things like that. And the world's uh, supplies are actually running out. And so in a few years time, people may not need to worry anymore about fluoride going to the drinking water supply because uh, we may not be able to get access to it. Okay, so, you know, like many people, I'm aware of deforestation. I'm aware of the loss of topsoil. I'm aware of the global impending shortage of sand, obviously peak oil. I was not aware that we're also like past peak fluoride. (laughs) That's right, peak phosphorus and, and by default peak fluoride. So which would, would open up a whole new thing around alternative sources of phosphorus um, uh, and resource recovery and, and things like that. But, you know, that, yeah. that, that could be for another day, basically, is um, where we're trying to find alternative and sustainable sources of phosphorus in the world. Wow, fun. Yep. And just, like, remember people, like, obviously, yes, your children should be brushing their teeth, but it's, it's quite a bit easier probably to get them to be adding to that a little bit of water drinking and to have nice little solid teeth because we all know dental bills are horrendously terrifying sometimes. And this sounds like yeah, great, cheap alternative while it lasts. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> oh, good. Another end of the world. Okay. Is there anything else that you would like to mention? Anything else that we haven't covered? Uh, In terms of going back to advice for young people considering science careers, I'd like to suggest 
you know, if you've got an interest, jump online and check out your nearest university website for their offerings on high school science and technology programs and workshops. Just recently, I was told about the Girls Programming Network and um, more locally, the workshop series that's running at the University of Melbourne. And it's a series of one-day programming workshops. It's hosted by volunteers um, and they teach high school girls programming skills using Python programming language. I'm sure just about every university in the country would have similar programs and and in many cases they're free. So get out there and learn about the world of science and technology at your local university. And adding to that, sometimes the universities have camps. There's there's all sorts of like student science organizations that you can join generally like higher up in higher high school, which yeah, offer camps, sort of like little samplers to get to try different kinds of science and also get to meet other little science nerds, which is one of the best parts about them. Yeah. Spending a day learning Python, that sounds like a a nice Saturday. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Who doesn't (laughs) want to learn how to program in Python? (laughs) And if you're paying attention, people, Python is the same language that way back when I was interviewing a an astronomer, that's what she was programming in to like look at the big data of the stars. So Python is a very, very utilized language. Yeah, very, very useful, very versatile. We use it in a lot of our um, operations, you know, in terms of reporting and controls. Very cool. Okay. Well, thank you, Dr. Kathy, for coming on the show and sharing so many wonderful uh, little facts with us. Some of them are bit terrifying but some of them are just good fun so thank you so much for coming thanks a lot amelia it was an absolute pleasure thanks so much for listening if you like this podcast you're an absolute gem of a human being and you should head over to avidresearch.com.au sign up for our amazing email newsletter and get all the download on the upcoming episodes and maybe even get a bit of a sneak peek about what's coming next if you've been enjoying this podcast you should definitely subscribe we're on apple stitcher spotify and even google these days thanks